Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with us here today, as usual, is our brilliant, well-traveled co-host, Lester Tate. Hey, Lester, how are you doing? Uh, it's great to be uh, in Cartersville, Georgia this morning and recording a, a podcast uh, that, that that I understand uh, in, enjoys some some minor popularity uh, uh, throughout the, the, the cybersphere. That's right. We're celebrating 5,000 uh, downloads. And as my kids pointed out, probably shouldn't call it download. Shouldn't it be like 5,000 listens? Yeah. How about 5,000 likes? Likes. Yeah. No, is that asking too much? Yeah, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. But I mean, for those 5,000 people, I want to urge them to go out and exponentially spread the gospel of CU in court uh, that that you and I regularly uh, regularly preach here. And uh, maybe may, maybe we'll be able to to get an exponential following there. Yeah, I was going to tell you, I know you've been traveling a lot this month. We were just talking about that. But um, I'm tired this morning because last night I went to the Earth, Wind and Fire concert and oh, it was wow. fabulous. Wow. But I'm I'm now drinking a lot of coffee from our See You in Court coffee mugs, putting in a lot of caffeine into my system. That's well, uh, that's, you, that's the music of our high school years, Robin. Yeah. You know? Oh, I know. And Robin, you are you are a shining star. <laughs> thank, thank you, Craig. Well, speaking of shining star, I would call I would say right back at you, Craig. Um, today we are very excited to have a Georgia trial lawyer with us, Craig Jones, and I call him the official guru of governmental liability. And I think most Georgia lawyers would agree with me on that. Uh, he is the go-to person when there's any question at all about governmental liability, who you can sue, whether you can sue a, a particular type of government, how to do it. Craig is uh, the guru. So let me I think it, I, th I think it probably is more accurate to describe it as governmental non-liability. Non-liability. Because that is the, that is the except, liability's exception rather than the rule, unfortunately. They, they, yeah. The law has historically made it difficult uh, to sue the king. It used to be impossible to sue the king. Now it's possible under very limited circumstances to do so. Let me, and when let those me, circumstances let me share are, is about as clear as mud, too. Uh, it's yeah. Nice. Be before we get into that, and, and we are definitely going to explore that, um, let me tell our listeners, Craig, a little bit more about you. Craig Jones is a North Carolina native who is a graduate of Brown University and Wake Forest University School of Law. He has been handling cases of governmental liability, or as he says, non-liability, uh, since the 1980s, including two civil rights cases that Craig personally argued in the United States Supreme Court, Hope v. Pelzer in 2002 and Scott v. Harris in 2007. And we're going to talk about a little bit about both of those cases. They're fascinating. Uh, in addition to representing plaintiffs in police misconduct and other governmental liability cases, 
Craig has practiced practiced extensively in the areas areas of personal injury, medical malpractice, product liability, and premises liability. After practicing for 29 years in Atlanta and eight years in Washington, Georgia, Craig and his wife, Sharon, are in the process of moving their empty nest to Savannah, where he will continue to maintain a statewide tort practice with civil rights cases in all three federal districts of Georgia. Uh, Craig used to always have, have as his byline a city lawyer in the country. Um, interesting. I, I love that you say that about yourself. But Craig, welcome to the show. And thank you. And I actually stole that line from uh, Jim Martin when he was in the state legislature. And uh, I was actually given testimony about uh, governmental liability before a, a legislative committee. And Roy Barnes was on the committee and Jim Martin was on the committee. And both of them made, you know, you know made comments and uh, another legislator who was a non-lawyer made some kind of wisecrack about you lawyers and uh, and jim immediately said well the difference is that um roy is a uh, city lawyer in the country and i'm a country lawyer in the city so that, that always kind of stuck with me that's a good one well speaking like of that. that i know you have testified in front of numerous um, state house, maybe even state senate committees on government, uh, governmental liability once or, throughout once or the twice. years. Once or twice. I know you have. Uh, I've been personally involved in where you've helped us uh, present testimony to uh, folks at the Capitol. So thank you for all all of that. I mean, that's that is uh, volunteering your time to try to make things right for Georgia citizens under the law, and we really appreciate it. Um, tell us, Craig, tell us a little bit about your practice and how did you first get into um, this governmental liability uh, practice? Well, I went to a college where you you sat under trees and read poetry. And, and so when I got to law school, I really wasn't disciplined. I didn't have the good study habits. And I think I was a hundred and 34 out of 137 in my class. So I didn't have a job offer when I got out. I, I moved to Atlanta because I remembered why it was that I left North Carolina to go to college uh, after I'd been there in law school for about three days. So I moved to Georgia, moved to Atlanta, moved from one shop to another, basically learned that I could make money doing settlement packages on whiplash cases. And that was basically what I did for the first five the 10 years of my practice is I took chiropractors out to lunch and I, and I handled minor personal injury cases, uh, much like the, 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 the billboard lawyers do today. Um, and then I had a case that wandered into my office where a woman had been, uh, or her husband had been shot by a Smyrna police officer, um, on a DUI stop. And I'd always had an interest in constitutional law and I was a history nerd. So, that really, I think that was meant to be. And I associated Bobby Lee Cook on that case. I learned a lot of a lot of cool stuff. Next thing you know, I had other police shooting cases, other excessive force cases. And I would say for the last 10 years that 90% of my practice has involved either police misconduct or bad behavior by, you know, some sort of government official who has, you know, caused an injury. 
Yeah. Um, let me ask you, I, I guess just because you've become the go-to guy, so I'm sure a lot of folks, other lawyers who don't do this kind of law send clients to you. Can you talk to us a little bit about when a, when a potential client walks into your office, how do you analyze a case like this? How? It, 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 let's talk about the fact that it's they're very difficult to begin with. So you are taking on a a, a piece of law that that the cards are kind of stacked against you from the get go. Sure. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you go about analyzing a case when a potential client walks into your office. Well, I'll be honest with you. I probably get three or four calls a day and I probably turn down 95 out of 100, you know, meaning without even an appointment. But what I'm looking for first and foremost, is are there significant damages? Because I know it's going to be a difficult case no matter what. It's going to be hard, whether it's a small case or big case. So if it's a big case that meets my damages threshold, then then I then I move to the next question, which is, you know, what do you think they did wrong? And uh, unfortunately, the vast majority of the time, nobody knows what happened. You know, it's it's a uh, it's somebody's kid and somebody and some cop in a dark alley and uh, nobody. There's no witnesses except the cop and there may or may not be video. And I can't afford to have hundreds of open files sitting around so that I can investigate and determine whether it's a case or not. So I guess um, I mean, maybe if you'd ask me this, it would be a better question to ask me 20 years ago, maybe when I was less selective <laughs> about my cases. But what I'm looking for is damages, a case that I know has value so that if we do win the case, it'll be worth the years of time and effort put into it. And um, that uh, and, and, and then in terms of liability, um, I need to be convinced in my mind that it's a slam dunk case, because if I think it's a slam dunk case, there's a maybe a, only a 50 or 60 percent chance that i'll lose it <laughs> because uh, you know as lester said the, the laws are muddy in this area and for good reason the law gives lots of leeway to police officers uh gives them the benefit of the doubt uh gives them all kinds of legal protections because otherwise anytime a police officer or any government official for that matter did something or failed to do something, somebody would be ticked off and somebody would want to sue. No matter what they do or what they don't do, somebody is li liable to get hurt. So it has to be something that fits into a particular pigeonhole that violates a particular constitutional right that's been, you know, clearly established by law over the years. And you can look at a book and say, thou shalt not do this and then make the case that the officer violated that rule and then hope that the the, the 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 damages were enough to justify the years of work that it takes to get to that point so i got i have sort of a policy question for you craig uh you know i recently you know i, I was actually talking to our sheriff uh here in uh, from bartow county we were on a little fishing trip and we were talking about qualified immunity and course that we'll talk more about what that is later but it provides specific protections that make it very difficult to sue uh, a law enforcement officer that is in any way in performance of his duties and uh he said uh 
you know, boy, if they ever do away with qualified immunity, I'm going to be out of this business. And uh, I said, you know, I kind of have this thought that one of the reasons that you see so many law enforcement officers being prosecuted is because the the victim or the family's victim don't have a civil remedy. And so it really ramps up the pressure on uh, district attorneys, U.S. attorneys to criminally go after somebody uh, who got up that morning, probably just going to their job like we go to their job, to our job, Mm -hmm. you know. Do you do you agree with that assessment? Or I absolutely. Am I, am I, I absolutely agree with that assessment. Uh, I see police officers being criminally prosecuted for things that they can't be sued for. Right, <laughs> and, right. and that's really because the you know the criminal law doesn't have something called summary judgment. You know, they uh, basically you know they put the facts in front of a jury, and the jury decides the facts and. Too many times in civil cases, you've got judges looking at the facts, putting their own spin on it, and then deciding whether uh, a jury ought to try the case or not. So, you know, whenever there's a, a high-profile tragedy, there's political pressure that gets brought to bear on the prosecutors, on the police, on everyone to do something about it, and sometimes it makes more sense for a prosecutor to just put it in front of a grand jury and see what happens um, as opposed to putting their head in the sand and not doing anything about it like they like they used to do but but my thought is that it ought to be easier to sue the police and it ought to be harder to criminally prosecute them and if anything if they should have immunity at all it ought to be in the criminal sphere rather than in the civil sphere if a truck driver crosses the center line and wipes out a school bus, you know, they don't get immunity for that. Uh, they make a, they do their job. They, they, they the, the, the truck driver, you know, is, is acting in good faith. He makes a simple error of judgment and kills people. And uh, guess what? His insurance company pays for it. And that's really the way it ought to be with the, the law enforcement. And that's the way it is with Bartow County. They have insurance. Um, and, uh, it's, who is your sheriff now, by the way? Mark Millsap. Yeah, I've sued, I've sued him before. Tell him I said, Hey, (laughs) are there, are there any of the 159 counties you haven't sued the sheriff, Greg? There's quite a few. The one with Millsap, and it wasn't him personally, but it was a deputy who they, they, um, the sheriff gets named even when the sheriff. It's right, and that's point. partly that. That's part of that is because of nuances in in Georgia law that that we probably don't want to get too deep in the weeds on. But but it, it's you know if you're talking about uh, sheriff's deputies doing something wrong, the way Georgia law is, and the way a lot of states' law is, that the 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 sheriff's deputies don't work for the county; they're considered a, a separate governmental entity, and then. Um, but yeah, you know, the county pays for the, the guns, the county pays for the training, the county pays for their their wages, uh, pays for their vehicles, and pays for their insurance. Um, so I, the way the law set up, and uh, not just in that context, but in a lot of contexts, you end up having to sue a police officer individually for something that he or she did, uh, and the money's not coming out of their pocket. And you cannot sue the city or county itself because depending on what kind of what law you're working with, 
uh, likely may not be able to sue the agency itself. So all you have is a, a, a an individual police officer who's doing their job in maybe in good faith, maybe not. And uh, it's not clear that there's going to be a deep pocket there uh, to stand uh, behind them. And it, no. yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm it's all right. Um, interestingly, I watched the Georgia Supreme Court oral arguments yesterday. They were at John Marshall. I watched them on online, John Marshall Law School. And this yeah, issue John of, Haddon, John Haddon's John Haddon, yeah. John Haddon yeah. argued for the plaintiff yesterday on a, a Clayton County, Georgia case where mm-hmm. they're saying um County and sheriff should be basically the same entity for the exact reasons you've just said. They have the same insurance. They're they're part of the county, uh, and so that issue is going to be decided, or or at least a, a part of it's going to be decided by the Georgia Supreme Court soon, um, within the next few months. Yeah, and that that is a um, that's a real narrow slice of the the landscape here. There's so many yeah. different nuances to all this, but. The, the yeah. irony, the irony of that case, and I, and, and it will impact a, a couple of cases that I have that are that are pending on appeal. Um, the irony is that you have the Georgia law which says that sheriffs do not work for the county. You have a statute that says if you're suing the county, you have to give them uh, notice within a year, and that statute doesn't say anything about sheriffs anywhere in it. So. If sheriffs aren't don't work for the county and you can't sue the county for what the sheriff does, why does that statute have anything to do with sheriffs? But the, the court of appeals has said multiple times that if you if you're suing the if you're suing the sheriff, you gotta put the sheriff on notice within a year, just like you would if you were suing the county, even though the sheriff and the county are two different things. Essentially it's a case of judges, you know, blue penciling additional language into a statute to achieve what they believe is a a fair result in a given case where it may have made sense to do that at one point, but then it affects all these other cases. Yeah. And and that's always a challenge if you're a judge. I mean, if you're a legislature, you're you're making broad rules that probably need to have loopholes and exceptions created by judges to achieve a fair result. But then, on the other hand, whenever a, a court does that, then they create mischief for other cases down the line. And I guess that's why they have people like the three of us um, practicing law to, you know, try to bridge that gap. And the and the th- the other thing is, and I I, you, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong about this, but like I totally understand our sheriffs, you know, not, not wanting the qualified immunity, you know, feeling like oh, you know, it gives me some protection. Um, and then, you know, I, I have a sort of uh, different take on that. You know, where you where you stand on something depends on where you sit, you know, a lot yeah. of times. But we have done like with the Georgia Tort Claims Act. Now, we specifically excluded law enforcement officers from the Georgia Tort Claims Act. But one of the things that was sort of an impetus for that was Department of Transportation engineers and highway designers getting sued all the time in an individual capacity. Uh, for their negligence, and we set up a system where, and I, Robin and I both have have uh, uh, I know sued under this system, and I know you have, where you can sue the state, and they're made the appropriate defendant. So all of this would be subject to a very clear legislative fix that could actually give the sheriffs and the law enforcement officers more protection 
than uh, than they have just with the qualified immunity and get some justice for some folks too. Right. For example, with automobile accidents, there's a statute, uh, OCGA 36-92-2, that says that all cities and counties are uh, required to provide a certain amount of insurance protection for car accidents. And um, you could um, you, you could simply change the word accidents for uh, for tort claims. <laughs> or personal injury claims, you could make that apply across the board for everything. And the statute says you can't sue the individual employee. You have to sue the agency. And it, and it's for a set amount of money. Um, now, in, as it stands right now, um, in other types of cases, if other non-motor vehicle cases, if you're suing a police officer individually because they say assaulted your client or used excessive force, made a false arrest, whatever it happens to be, um, you um, you have to sue them uh, individually. And depending on whether you're talking about state law or federal law, there are certain immunities available to officer, but if you get around that immunity, then there's no cap on the liability. There's, um, you know, there's no limit to the coverage which means that if the county has a million dollars in insurance and the jury awards $5 million to somebody that the officer kills, the officer is potentially on the hook for that $4 million. And, um, and then the, you know, there's an issue of whether they can go after their insurance company for bad faith or not settle the case. But that's something that maybe it's too fine of a point for this discussion. But uh, when you're talking about excess coverage and potential bad faith, exposure for insurance companies if you sue an individual an officer individually they have that if you sue the agency itself they don't because the agency has sovereign immunity above the amount of insurance and therefore there is no excess exposure so potentially it, it could be better on the for the defense side the insurance side too if it was easier to sue and if you could just sue the agency and if the liability was capped you know, that is the, 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 it sounds like the people that are really making out like bandits on this are the the, the insurers for uh, for uh, governmental entities because they rarely have to pay and they still collect a pretty hefty premium. Absolutely. In fact, I have a case right now. I got a default judgment against the city of East Point for seven million dollars. And it's it's what I call a triple crown default. Uh, the officers I sued I sued three individual officers. All, none of them filed an answer. I served the city attorney, and he sent me an email. Thanks for calling this to my attention. <laughs> and then I served the insurance company by certified mail, and everybody dropped the ball. Nobody filed an answer. Uh, the thing went to trial six months later. I got a default judgment. Every possible, every possible I has been dotted and every T has been crossed. Then we waited out the appeal period. We waited out the, the term of court. And then we sent them a nice letter and say, you know, well, that would be cash or check. Um, <laughs> so actually what we've done now is we filed a lawsuit against the insurance company uh, on the policy to try to collect the judgment which are fighting, of course, saying there's no coverage. They charge the city of East Point $1.6 million, taxpayer money, $1.6 million a year for an insurance policy. 
that they say provides no coverage because they said it was the city's fault that the case went into default and not theirs because the city has a duty to defend and they only have a duty to indemnify, which is crap because it also requires the city to put the insurance company on notice of anything that if it's more than 50, if the potential value of the claim is is 50% of the self-insured potential or more, they they want to provide a defense. And, and obviously the self-insured retention is case 150,000 and uh, the insurance is 7 million. I don't think that's going to play well, uh, but, but, but you make the, that's an excellent point. $1.6 million for an insurance policy that has weasel words in it where they can claim they don't have to pay. Right. And that's taxpayer money that's paying for that. Yeah, almost sounds fraudulent to me. I, I uh, will be watching for that, Craig. That that sounds mm-hmm. very, very promising. And Let's how many start- hundreds and thousands of other cities have they done the same thing to? It's, sure. it's Chubb. I mean, it's a, it's a subsidiary of Chubb, which is one of the biggest insurance companies in the world. They got a lot of money sitting in Swiss bank accounts. Because they spend more time collecting premiums than paying out claims like most insurance companies. That's right. It's a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, Craig, let's, for our listeners, talk a little bit about the different types of gov- governmental liability because okay. it's so bizarre. As you mentioned, counties are sort of out on their own. Uh, we've got for state, Georgia Tort Claims Act. For city, they have their own mechanism. Can, can we talk a little bit about state, municipal, and county liability and why they're they're even different in the state of Georgia? Okay. Historically, uh, cities or municipalities were treated kind of like corporations. Uh, you know, they're, they're creatures created by the state. In fact, they're called municipal corporations, right. whereas counties are subdivisions of the state itself. So historically, you could never, you couldn't sue the state, and because you can't sue the state, you couldn't sue a county. Uh, and then, with regard to uh, municipalities there were statutes over the years that said there's one in particular that said if a city has insurance then um they waive their immunity to the extent of the insurance they can be sued to the extent of their insurance but if they elect not to have insurance then they have immunity the, the same as the city the county and the state now there were some court decisions in the 80s that basically extended that principle to the state, to counties, they basically said school districts, they basically, for a few years in the 80s, uh, there were a lot of cases that said, if you have insurance, it's insurance money, it's not the taxpayer money that you're protecting, and therefore, there's no policy, the policy in favor of sovereign immunity, which is protecting the person, the taxpayers, doesn't apply to the extent you have insurance. Then there were some political reforms um, from the right on the, um, there was a constitutional amendment in 1991 where voters were asked to approve a ballot measure that would quote, make it possible to sue the state. And the actual language, the amendment made it it impossible to sue the state. Um, And the Supreme Court said, well, that's okay because anybody could go down to the county registrar's office, pull up the actual ballot language themselves. And it didn't matter if the language on the uh, the, on the voting ballot was was misleading or not. I mean, I thought that was a crazy decision. 
but in a very in a very broad what vague way um they were giving they were giving people the legislature the power uh to pass laws that would enable the the student state and they did pass such law they passed the court claims that but it's a political compromise you know it's um it's you had less rights to sue now that the, the voters voted to amend the constitution in 1991 they have fewer rights uh to sue uh the state than they did in 1991 even though they voted in 1991 for the right to do something that they already had the right to do <laughs> and, and that's just politics uh let's just one, go ahead yeah, there, well, there's obviously a lot of uh, politics involved in, in all types of governmental immunity, especially sure. counties. We'll get to that. But while we're talking about state governmentals, the state as a potential defendant, you have to sue under the Georgia Tort Claims Act. That's the only yes. way you can sue. And damages are capped uh, at a million dollars per, I guess, cause of action or per incident. We argue per sometimes claim. per claim. We sometimes claim. argue conscious pain and suffering is a million and then death is a million, something like that. So there is a, yeah, there was a case a few, well, some years ago that Charles Mathis had down in Milledgeville and they held that the claim of the estate for uh, uh, pain and suffering and other things was a separate claim from the claim for wrongful death itself, which was held by the surviving family. I'm not sure why they, they hadn't they hadn't schmoozed some amendment in to 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 to, to fix that, but um, we don't want to give many ideas. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, and and Lester kind of alluded to this before about the Tort Claims Act. When it was passed, there was a lot of political sausage making that went into it, and uh, they wanted they didn't they wanted to make it to where you sue the agency and not the state employee because if you have to sue an employee individually it can affect their credit it can keep them from being able to buy a home you know just because their name turns up on a on a on a docket search you know as being in a lawsuit even though it's not their money involved they didn't want them the individuals to be stigmatized by the lawsuit so they made it where you had to sue the agency but then on the other hand they put some exceptions in the Tort Claims Act and exclusions that just make it impossible to sue for certain things like, like if you if, if you've got something against the police involving uh, excessive force, assault, battery, false arrest, false imprisonment, malicious prosecution, or actually anything, and this this is some really catch-all phrase, anything involving the method of providing law enforcement. You can't sue under the Tort Claims Act for that, which means, and I know why they did it. They were trying to get the act passed, and and that was something that they agreed to sacrifice because they said, well, you can always sue under federal law for that. You can always sue for federal constitutional violations. We don't need to have that under state law. Unfortunately, the federal law is you know just as difficult for other reasons. So. Um, it's it's a mixed bag. In some ways, the Tort Claims Act was good for plaintiffs. In other ways, it was bad. Uh, if you have a case against the state patrol for or the GBI, you're not going to be able to sue them under state law. 
because the Tort Claims Act says that state employees have immunity and you can only sue the agency. It also says that the agency has immunity um, if 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 the, what you're suing for is excluded under an exception in the act. So the only thing you can do there, ironically, is sue the individual state trooper, sue the individual uh, GBI agent in federal court for violations of uh, federal civil rights. And then you got to get around your federal offenses like qualified immunity. And then if you do that, um, ironically, the state's, still going to defend them. The attorney general is still going to defend them. The same pot of money that it provides insurance under the Tort Claims Act also applies under the federal law if you're suing a state employee, but you're suing an employee, you're not suing the state itself. And you can't sue the state itself under federal law because of the 11th Amendment. Uh, you, you can't sue. Is it, and, and that, and, and there's some other technical reasons for that. Under the Civil Rights Act, a state's not considered a person, but a municipality or county is. And I mean, it, it's that's why we have lawyers, folks, is well, to create you also, when you're <laughs> talking about ambiguities like that and then to try to cut through them. Well, my friend Robin Clark, had a, had, we, we were on a panel together about state tort claims one time. And she had a great line. She said, you know, I've got this requirement of an anti-litem notice and it has to have certain things in there. And she said, does anybody know why they have these these requirements? And nobody really raised their hand, you know, and, and she said, so they can kick you out of court. Exactly. <laughs> that, exactly. That's why they have them. Yeah. Um, and you were talking, though, about the. Uh, specifically, and in, in, in it's the Department of Administrative Services for state tort claims that has the has the pot of gold that they pay out of uh, if they want to settle stuff or if uh, if they get a verdict and it finally gets affirmed. My it's a state self insurance plan. Yeah, it's a self insurance plan. And you know, my, I, I had a situation where I had a, the wrongful death where you've got the two, you know, two claims. You've got the estate claim and you have the uh, uh, the wrongful death claim, and I got one point one million on the wrongful death claim, and three hundred thousand dollars on the conscious pain and suffering, you know, estate claim. And uh, you know, even after the verdict came in, they kept trying to settle the case with me, and I thought they were going to pay me a million dollars, and we were going to, you know, we were just going to kind of be done with it. And uh, so it ended up, they, I had the interest running on the judgment. And uh, at the end of the day, I got the whole amount, caps notwithstanding, because I got the interest, you know, off the thing. And so it was like $400,000 was a plaintiff's lawyer. And for my client, I'm very happy that I got $400,000 more. But as a taxpayer, you know, they wasted $400,000 of taxpayer money uh, uh, and not on a pre-suit settlement. I'm talking about one, they already had a verdict, you know, against them in where there's sort of a, uh, you know, where it's been, uh, you, know, you know, there's a value sort of established for it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and I think that um, you make a fair point there about the waste. And one thing you can say about government is that they uh, in in the self insurance plans 
is that they're not they're not run like businesses. And if you've got a, a commercial insurance carrier that's looking out for its own bottom line, they look at they look at their own P and L statement more than um, government people care about taxpayer money. In my in my experience, and for example, we have a I have a shooting case uh, against Gainesville uh, Gainesville police officer, and it's insurance on one beacon out of Boston, I believe. Uh, the vast majority of the cities and counties in Georgia that have insurance are insured through this self-insurance, this shared risk pool that's created by the legislature, which is essentially a trust fund where all these cities and counties pool their money called uh, Garmo Irma. You know, uh, ACCG, Association County Commission of Georgia has one, and then the Georgia Municipal Association has one. And they view themselves as trustees of the county's money, and and they will fight you to the end of time to keep you from getting that county money. Uh, and uh, without regard for the amount of money that it's that they end up paying lawyers uh, to not pay us. I mean, I'd rather they pay us than pay their lawyers. <laughs> but but we have one where we have a law firm on the other side that's notorious for just you know papering you to death, and all they do is file motions and claim and appeals and everything and finally we got to where we won the appeal and we get we own a trial calendar and in other words from our standpoint as plaintiffs we're back to square one we're back to where we started which is we want our day in court and we still have to prove our case to the jury so after four years of litigation and the appeal says yeah you have a case that's good enough to go to a jury they turn around and write us a check for the entire policy limits. You know, we didn't have to fight for it at that point. They'll spend five years fighting to keep you out of court. And then once you once you get your day in court, they're ready to pay you. And that's because they're looking at it like a business. They're saying, okay, we're going to get creamed if we go to trial on this thing. Uh, these guys know what they're doing. They put up a good fight. We better pay them the money or it's going to end up costing us more down the road. That's the way private insurance companies will work in this situation more so than the, the governmental lawyers who, um, you know, other case I had recently, a uh, guy died in prison, a uh, guy was electrocuted in his cell. Uh, coroner viewed the term to death a death by electrocution no information was available whatsoever on how this guy electrocuted himself. Uh, I couldn't get anything under open records. Uh, we um, we filed a he set up an estate for him out of state. We we had the administrative this is where he was from. We had the administrative the state subpoena documents. The state refused to produce them under some state secrets doctrine. Went all the way to the court of appeals. I said we weren't entitled to any documents. So guess what I did? I turned around and sued the, them under something called race ipsa loquitur. I said, there's no documentation on what happened. Nobody knows what happened. Uh, but people don't generally get electrocuted in the absence of negligence, you know. And uh, we're suing the people responsible for that electrical system, and we're going to get by summary judgment based on race ipsa loquitur because of that presumption. Immediately, the state turned over the documents that showed that my guy was fiddling around with an electrical outlet because he was trying to make toast from bread that he brought up from the mess hall. 
And they spent three years trying to keep me from getting information. What all they had to do is give me a piece of paper to begin with that tell me what happened. And I would have decided right then and there, this is a sad story, but it's not a lawsuit. And the reason it's not a lawsuit, even though they probably, there may have been some code compliance issues as far as the outlet, whether it was properly protected or grounded or whatever, under state law, we've got something called apportionment and comparative negligence. And and if uh, if the plaintiff, if the person who was killed in this case was equally at fault or more at fault, he doesn't get any money. And I didn't see any way that somebody who takes a plate off an electrical outlet and starts, you know, fiddling with the wiring. How's that that's, that's a not? state secret that you reveal is how how uh, inmates in the in a penal institution make uh, make toast. That was a state secret, you know. Exactly. I guess they would they they want the word to get out because other people might try to do it. I, I don't know, but it it just an example. And uh, actually, I wrote a letter, kind of a semi tongue in cheek, holding my nose letter to the. The, to the baby lawyer in the attorney general's office, thanking them for their professionalism and agreeing to produce that document to me immediately upon the filing of the second lawsuit. And then I totally reamed everybody else in the attorney general's office for fighting me in three different courts to protect me from getting this information, which anybody should have a right to know. They want to know why their son is dead. And people that work for them paid by the taxpayers hide behind these you know these legal doctrines to keep people from finding out the truth simply because it's there and simply because that rule is there there's some there's some nimrod somewhere in a, in a government building whose job is to enforce that one piece of you know that one sentence you know and and and, and, to, and to fight like hell uh to to preserve it and um and so anyway, I sent that I sent a copy of that letter to the other lawyers that had been involved in the cases. I sent a copy of it to the attorney general. I sent a copy of it to the governor. Um, and, when are you and, expecting to get a reply? Get a reply? Yeah, I'm. I'm sure the attorney general has responded, right? I did not get a reply. But here's what <laughs> happened: the next time I had a case, I, I had the friendliest person I've. I, I had the warmest reception I've ever had from anybody in the attorney general's office. So I, I know, I know they passed that letter around and, you know, snickered about it. Let's just say that I, I've earned their respect by, you know, being an asshole, which is sometimes what you got to do. <laughs> and I, I don't know if that gets edited out or not, but that is a, that is a legal term. We, 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 we have a, a, a regular PG warning uh, here uh, for, for our uh, listeners. You know, the same similar sort of thing that I've run up on, Craig, is in, in equity cases like mandamus and 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 stuff like that. You know, the uh the attorney general's office and the governor's office, and, and I basically mean this going back a long way, you know, that this is not a political shot at anybody. This is every governor and every attorney general of every political party you know, uh, has sort of taken the position that sovereign immunity protects from anything. No court can order us to do anything at all. They tried to uh, pass a waiver of, of sovereign immunity just to get laws declared unconstitutional that were plainly unconstitutional. 
and to attack other laws that were somehow violative. The, uh, I think two different governors vetoed the legislation. So legislature finally just took it as a constitutional amendment and it passed, you know, and the, the entirety of the population of the state of Georgia voted to say, yeah, if you think a law is unconstitutional, uh, you ought to have the right to sue the government and have a court pass on whether or not that law is constitutional. No money really changing hands at all. And, uh, you know, even after that, now I've had several cases where they go to the attorney general office, they still claim sovereign immunity. Yeah. Uh, and it's an example, again, of um, paying money to avoid, uh, paying money litigating stuff uh, in order to avoid the inevitable outcome. I mean, why, you know, why don't you pay us now instead of later? Um, but, um I don't know. Next question. <laughs> Let me ask you, Craig, um, out of state, municipal and county liability, it seems to me counties enjoy more sovereign immunity than even the state or, or our, our cities. Why is that? And why did they get special treatment? Well, under they, well historically, they were political subdivisions of the state. They had the same immunity as the state. But then when the State Tort Claims Act got passed, that only applied to state. It didn't apply to, to counties. There has been suggestions over the years that the Tort Claims Act ought to be amended to include counties or that there even ought to be a local government Tort Claims Act. Um, but um, there is a statute that provides that if a municipality, that is a city, has liability insurance, um, then they have basically made a policy decision that they want to provide protection for their citizens up to the amount of insurance. And and, and the legislature recognizes that as a, they, there is no similar statute for counties, except as it relates to motor vehicles. There is another statute that applies to cities, counties, and school districts, which is OCJ 33-24-51, which says that they waive their immunity from motor vehicle claims uh, to the extent of their insurance. And then since then, there's this other statute that's been passed, which is OCJ 36-33, no, 36 dash, what is it, 36-92-102. Anyway, the statutory waiver immunity says that all cities and all counties waived their immunity is waived up to five hundred thousand dollars for one claim or seven hundred thousand total for motor vehicle accidents but that only applies to cities and counties does not apply to school districts so it's a real patchwork and a lot of it has to do with the political influence of people you know educators lobbies very very powerful so um they didn't want the schools to be opposed to that law, I guess. So they they carved out the school systems, and school systems are probably harder to sue than counties um, in the state. Um, that and let, let's talk just a, just quickly about school systems because okay. some I think to me some of the most indefensible appellate opinions involve cases against educators. Um, no, you can't, as you say, you can't the you can't sue the school system or the the right. board, the school board. So you end up having to sue an educator who violated some policy or 
did something wrong that caused injury to a student. That that actually happens pretty frequently. I know Lester has had a case like that, um, and I think got a pretty bad appellate opinion out of that case. Um, I always talk about the the case where uh, a science teacher they had a policy to wear goggles during science experiments, a policy, a school policy, and she didn't she didn't make every student wear goggles during an experiment. And mm. guess what happened? Kid loses their eye right. because the experiment explodes. And there's an appellate opinion that said she had immunity mm-hmm. um, because enforcing a policy to wear goggles during an experiment was discretionary. Right. She okay. had to use her discretion to yeah. decide whether the policy applied or not. And, and so so let's talk yeah. just a little bit about discretionary versus ministerial uh, duties. And I always call ministerial duties, which which you don't have immunity for. I call them the the Loch Ness monster because you've heard about them, but you no one's ever seen a ministerial duty. Well, I have. I've had experiences that have gone both ways on that, but but your points are taken. Uh, if you're suing an employee, a, a government employee individually under Georgia law, um, they have what's called official immunity if they are performing discretionary tax acts and uh, or let me, let, me, let me phrase it the other way, man. They, they only have liability if they're negligent in the performance of this ministerial act, which is a direct, specific task uh, required by a rule or policy or practice that they don't have any discretion uh, to deviate from. If um, if there's a if there's a work rule that says this is the way you, know, you hook up the trailer to the earth moving machinery, whatever it is. Uh, and you don't do it that way, and somebody gets hurt, then yeah, they can be liable for that. But if it's not a minister, if there's no ministerial requirement, uh, if it's not an, a rule requiring them to do something in a certain way, and it requires them to use their discretion, and classic examples of discretion are things like uh, disciplining students, you know, disciplining and supervising school kids, or um, or uh, a decision to grant a permit or not grant a permit, you know, those types of discretionary things. There's no liability for that unless you can show that they acted with actual malice. And that's a very nebulous term that means different things in different in different contexts. Uh, in the police context, there's a lot of cases that I rely on a Supreme Court decision called Kid v. Coates. A court of appeals decision called Gardner v. Rogers. It says it, it talks about self-defense, and and there's a self-defense statute in Georgia that applies to citizens as well as police officers. And it basically says in this statute that you can only use deadly force to protect yourself or someone else against a a deadly threat. And um, the Supreme Court in that case. Is said, or those cases said, if you're not, if if the facts are such that you're not facing a lethal threat, then you're not you're not acting in good faith, where you're entitled to discretionary immunity. Essentially, 
you're acting with malice because rather than acting in self-defense, you are acting with tortious intent. And he told me it's a little bit muddy here. Um, and I'm not even sure it's correctly decided, you know, in the way they yeah. consistently, the way they decide this in other areas. But I argue that all the time. And when I have a police excessive force case, I'll sue under federal law for the violation of the Fourth Amendment. I'll add pendant state claims for assault, battery, negligence, whatever. And then if the federal claim gets kicked out by cause of uh, qualified immunity, and more often than not, some of the more conservative judges, the ones who are more likely to throw out a civil rights case, more likely than not, will dismiss the state law claims without prejudice because they tend to have more of a federalist uh, ideology. And they give me a second bite to Apple uh, to litigate that case again in state court. And I make an argument, and so far it's been working, that the, stat the Georgia statute says, you know, it's got to be a, a, a lethal threat and you have to use only that amount of force reasonably necessary to respond to the threat. When that, that necessary means if there's other alternatives that could have been done, like talking down the mental patient, de-escalating the situation, using a taser or something like that, even, even the mere fact that there are other alternatives would create a jury question under state law, in my view, as to whether it was reasonably necessary. And so I got a case right now in before the Georgia Court of Appeals got thrown out in federal court. And my client, who got shot off a motorcycle in a, in a Smokey and the Bandit situation because he refused to stop for, for Sheriff Buford T. Pusser, 78-year-old sheriff standing out in the middle of the road wearing overalls in a pickup truck. My client sees him, sees him standing there with a shotgun, goes, oh, shit, turns around, goes the other way. Sheriff shoots him off his motorcycle. Uh, that, was, uh, that was deemed okay by the federal judge. Uh, but in the, this, but the, ironically, the judge down there, the Superior Court judge in this county who sent my client to prison for a year for obstructing and fleeing and eluding the officers, that same judge denied their motion for summary judgment when I sued the sheriff in his court for using excessive force. That's so interesting. It's, it's, it's almost like the, the, the guy, and, 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 and it's almost like the judge, you know, he, he knows the sheriff, he knows the sheriff's propensities or did know his propensities. He's deceased now, by the way. Or, or um, maybe, maybe had second thoughts about how everything went down. Perhaps. Or, or you know what? Maybe he decided that justice would be to just let a jury of your peers decide the fate of both. I mean, my guy went to, he, we, he didn't have to go to a jury. If he go to a jury, yeah. he might have gotten 10 years. Yeah. But he, uh, he entered a plea uh, and was sentenced to a year, served nine months. He definitely paid the price for his foolishness, which should not have included having, you know, shrapnel in his skull for the rest of his life. Um, the sheriff, on the other hand, uh, if he's found to have acted unreasonably, Gee, the county's insurance company will have to pay my client a few hundred thousand dollars. I mean, that, that's that, that's the way it ought to work, in my view.
So, but the the way you're able to get that result is because of that Georgia self defense statute, or something there's actually really a policy of. But uh, the case Robin, uh, I think, is alluding to with me, yeah, which was you know 15, 20 years ago. But uh, woman uh, at the school back near athletic fields, coming down a school road, and they have what's called a pole gate. You know, just these poles that they pull out there. Well, they had mm-hmm. opened the pole gate, but they hadn't secured the pole gate back. And the mm-hmm. wind, you know, blew it out, and she literally got impaled with the pole mm-hmm. gate coming through through her window. And, uh, y- you know, guess what policies uh, school districts have on, on whether or not you tie back your pole gate? Zero. Right. It, it's not something that crossed the mind of the county attorney when they or the school board attorney when they were drafting up all these policies. Exactly. And also, and also, when they draft these policies, they always put these weasel words in the preface saying that this is not creating a legal duty. These are simply guidelines, yada, yada, yada. And the employee still has the discretion whether to follow them or not, even though they'll get fired if they don't. Right, <laughs> right, right. But, right. but you're, you're, it's, it's a challenge in every case. The only ones I've had success on making these kind of arguments are like water meter cases where you know, you got like a common, it's common sense. If you take the lid off the water meter to read the meter, you're supposed to put it back on. To me, if it's something that, you, if it violates one of the rules that you learn in kindergarten and you do, don't do that, you know, there's a strong argument that can be made that that's ministerial. And, uh, and so I have had three or four cases where people tripped or fell through unsecured water meter lids and they ended up settling um because you don't you know you 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 take the lid off you got to put it back the way you found it i mean that and and there is a case there's a case called what is it called austin v no austin v glass maybe glass v something there's a case involving um hooking up some kind of equipment backhoe or something like that um for a prison work crew and this is one of the best best cases to argue if you have this one of these kinds of cases is that if if you have testimony from someone who works there that this is the way we do it this is the way we're supposed to do it we'll get in trouble if we don't do it that way we ain't allowed to do it any other way well guess what that gives rise to a jury question that that is a, it's Glassy Gates. That's the name of the case. Glassy Gates. Um, that we gives rise to a jury question as to whether that's a ministerial duty, and it, it, it's it's hard to make it work, but 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 it gives you a roadmap to do that. I lost a case where I tried that, and and I think this exemplifies the problem you're talking about perfectly. I had a case where a Fulton County police officer accidentally shoots a kid. Kid's hiding in the woods. Uh, kid comes out. He gets on. He says, get on your knees. He gets on his knees. This is 16-year-old, by the way. Puts his hands on the back of his head. And the police officer, seeing the blue lights circling the neighborhood and um, knowing that his backup's about to arrive, he wants to be standing there holding the trophy when they show up. 
So he, he, he decides to kick this kid, even though he's down on his knees with his hands behind his back. He decides to kick this kid in the back, push him flat on his stomach and handcuff him before the backup, you know, uh, gets there so he can show off what a study is. When he kicks the kid in the back, it involuntarily causes uh, his finger to pull the trigger and, you know, shoots the kid in the head. And immediately, immediately, you can hear on the radio, the cops are going, oh, my God. Oh, I'm so sorry. Stay with me, buddy. Stay with me, buddy. He's doing CPR. He's doing everything in the world that he can. And it turns out this is a white cop. It's a black kid. This is a white guy who went to the University of Georgia, got a majored in psychology, went into law enforcement because he wanted to help people. And he has a black wife and an interracial child. This is a 16-year-old black kid. He's just accidentally killed. There's no question in my mind that it was an accident. He didn't mean to do it. So um, Amy Totenberg rules. We file in federal court. We argue, first of all, it's uh, intentional force because he shouldn't have pointed the gun at the guy, period. And and by pointing the gun at the guy, and, and then it was foreseeable that that could cause the gun to go off. So... That was an intentional decision. That was an intentional use of force. She threw that out. She says, no, no, it's accident. It's not a constitutional violation. But under state law, he violated a cardinal rule of firearm safety. It says in the training materials, it says on a sign at the range, at the gun range. It even says it on a sign in the stall of the toilet at the, at the police department's gun range. Rules of firearm safety, number three is never put your finger on the gun and let on the trigger unless you intend to pull it. This guy had his finger on the trigger. I argued that that was a violation of ministerial duty. Guess what the 11th Circuit said? They said, no, no, no. The decision to make an arrest is discretionary, and then therefore he has immunity. I mean, you can back something back far enough. You know, the decision to get out of bed that morning was discretionary, therefore they had no duty. The Georgia law in that particular case, Glass v. Gates, says you look at the specific task, which is closest in time and closest in causation to the injury. So they completely just screwed up their interpretation of Georgia law, even though I asked them to certify it to the Georgia courts. But guess what? When we came back down to the federal court, I was then able to appeal Judge Totenberg's original ruling that the the shooting was not a constitutional violation because you know you have to have a it's got to be a final judgment before you can appeal it in federal court and that was just an interlocutory ruling we got up to the 11 this is one of my favorite stories we got up to the 11th circuit on the second case my panel i show up for oral argument i'm looking at ed carnes i'm looking at joe flat and I'm looking at a judge out of D.C. named Santel, who was the one that threw out the case against Ollie North. He's a darling of the Federalist Society. So I got the three most conservative judges I could possibly deal with. So I got up there and I said, you know, I said, I said, would, would you believe that Amy Totenberg said that this was not a constitutional violation? And I honestly think they just reversed her because they c- couldn't agree with her on anything. But but this was the argument. The argument was. Just because the cop said he didn't mean to shoot didn't make it mean it was an accident. What if he, for a split second, intended to shoot, and then the second he did, he realizes, oh, my God, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, my God, I screwed up. Uh, You know, 
you can't ask somebody whether they intended to kill somebody that, that that doesn't decide whether they get prosecuted for murder or not. You know, it's it's something the jury's got to determine from all the circumstances. And there's a presumption in the law that you intend the consequences of your actions. So we went back to the worst panel imaginable. They reversed the uh, decision by Amy Totenberg saying there was no constitutional violation and Fulton County paid me uh, $2 million to settle that case. Even wow. though even though if the jury had ultimately ruled that it was an accident, there would have been no liability at all. And, and, and all the classic there, too, uh, Craig, yeah. is that, that uh, you know, what, what you described actually happened, and, and the, I'm sure the anguish, too, that the police officer went through, just oh, like yeah. a truck driver that goes over the line Mm -hmm. uh, the truck driver would have been covered from day one. That case would have been clear liability, would have gotten settled without without all of that. Right. Instead, what happens is um, the case gets thrown out on qualified immunity. Qualified immunity um, everybody circles the, wan the wagon. They falsify police reports to cover the cop's ass, and then they promote him. That's how it usually works, unfortunately. I mean, that's what's, the culture of law enforcement. Particularly, what's the name of that case? The name of that case was State, S-P-E-I-G-H-T, versus, at one time it was Fulton County. I didn't know yeah, I got you. getting out of the case, but I, I can't remember the name of the officer. Maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. The kid's name was Cunningham and uh, his, you know, his parents, he was a minor, so his parents filed suit and then the last name was State. Um, but I do remember we got a structured settlement for the kid. And so even though he walks through the limp and he's not, he no longer, you know, he's not all there, you know, he had some significant injuries. Um, he's like the only 20 year old kid I knew who, you know, bought his own house. He actually bought a duplex. We we actually had a special needs trust, which bought a duplex for him and his family. He lives on one side and did the swinging single life. His parents live on the other side, and they're able to attend to his needs as necessary. So, right. I mean, I, I would prefer to have gotten nice. ten times more money than that, but that that's how much insurance uh, we were dealing with. Craig, I want to talk. Um I do want to talk about the two United States Supreme Court cases you've argued, okay. uh, because I, I may have told you this, but you're the only attorney I know personally who has argued in the United States Supreme Court. And that's quite an accomplishment. And you've done it twice. Um, David Walbert's done it five times. OK, well, I do know, David, but. But that um, was that. But that was the that difference is these are things where he was like a representing the state or, or somebody in an action involving voting rights or something like that. And right. Both of my cases are cases where I signed up somebody who was a, essentially a criminal um, on my little contingent fee agreement and worked the case from day one all the way to the end and then argued it myself. So it's That's not, amazing. Not the yeah. typical case where, you know, you've got huge, you know, lots of people, you know, battalions of lawyers, and then they yeah. they the best person to argue the case. 
right they bring in they bring in other firms who have argued oh god yeah they were the people that were trying to argue the first case to me uh it would people come all over the country were offering to argue my case for me for free and all this kind of stuff and i said i'm sorry damn it's my case i want to do it and and if it's going to be lost i want it to be my fault and and then then the second time but i got a good result in that case and then the second time no one ever approached me Apparently, there's this whole little clique out there of Supreme Court litigators, and they immediately, when a case goes up, they immediately like check the background of the person, and they all they all start trying to figure out how they can get get in on the action. Well, the second case I had, nobody did that because I had a track record from the first one, I guess. Fortunately, well, the, first, the first one I won, and the second one I lost. <laughs> I understand that helps. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the first one. Let's talk about Hope v. Pelzer, one twenty two S Supreme Court twenty five oh eight a two thousand two case. Um, I believe brought under the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment. Yes. Um, and that was where your client had been tied up to a hitching post in prison. Chained to a yeah, chained to a a, a, a metal post. I, I call it a hitching post. Was that what it was called in the case? That's what we call. I mean, that's what we called it. That's what the media called it. They, I think they, the the, the Department of Corrections was trying to call it a, a restraint rail or or something like that. But essentially, there was this was this was all political too. There was a governor in. Uh, Back in the, I guess it was the 80s and early 90s, uh, named Bob James, who was very, you know, wanted to be, you know, he wanted to be very tough on crime. And he was Vince Hooley's roommate at Auburn, as I remember. Was he really? Yeah, really. Okay. Well, he was this guy, they called him Wallace White over in in Alabama, but he was a, you know, he, this guy was a, um, um, he wanted to be tough on crime, and he he vowed to bring back chain gangs, and he did, even though they pretty much vanished, you know, vanished in the 1930s from the American landscape. You know, I'm talking about the chain gangs where they're literally chained together. You know, cool hand I, Luke, cool exactly, hand Luke, exactly. Take it up fact, here, boss. In fact, I actually made a cool hand Luke reference at one point um, in the. Oral ar- it, was, I, it was either in the oral argument or it was in a news interview about it. I don't remember. But, uh, but, but basically what happened is they had a pop. They brought back the chain gangs and they decided that um, in order for the chain gangs to work, um, if, 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 the, if the inmates refuse to work, you know, what are they going to do? So they devised this draconian punishment for them that if they're not willing to work their job, their job is going to be to stand out in the prison yard chained to a pole all day. Either way, they're going to work. <laughs> they're going to do their job. Or they're going to sit out there and be restrained. They're going to have no food or water. They're going to have no bathroom breaks. And they're going to stay chained to that pole until their crew comes back in at the end of the day. And um, they, the Southern Poverty Law Center had filed a class action to stop the chain gangs, stop the use of the hitching rail, some of these other practices that were going on. And they had success in 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 that class action. Um, but then there were maybe a dozen people 
who had suffered injuries, significant injuries as a result of being on this hitching post. And so they referred those cases to me to handle his damages claims. So they really did the hard work as far as the getting injunctive relief and stuff like that. But I got the glory because when I when my case, one of my cases went up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court basically said, you can't do this. And at, at that point, they had already stopped doing it. But I got credit for stopping it. In fact, I, I took credit for stopping it one time when the, my wife and kids were driving down to Biloxi, Mississippi one time uh, to freeload on a casino that gave us a gave us a free room for the weekend. We went down there late on the beach for a weekend without spending one one dime uh, in the casino. And on the way down there, we pulled off at uh, Monroeville, Alabama, because uh, my wife wanted to see if Harper Lee was at the Hardee's because she'd heard that's where she had breakfast. So we go down there. There's no sign of Harper Lee. Um, and we get back on the highway. And as we're, we're heading south on I-59 or 65, whatever it is, 65, I think. I see this water tank over the trees. It says limestone correction facility. I'm like, that rings a bell to me. Where do I know that from? All of a sudden, I realized that was where Larry Hope, my client in the Supreme Court case, had been. And as we get closer to the prison grounds, I see two wooden posts in the ground about eight feet apart that used to have a metal rod across them that they chained people to. And the rod was gone, but the metal posts were still there. And so I looked at my kids and my they were like eight, 10 and 12 at the time. And I said, you see those two posts in the ground over there? There used to be a metal pole between them. And if and if the, and if the prisoners didn't want to do their job, they would chain them up to that pole as punishment. And your dad went to Washington, D.C., to the U.S. Supreme Court and made them stop doing that. And my 12 year old says, What'd you do that for? <laughs> <laughs> and ironically, that's the one that that is the one kid who's had the mental health issues and the problems with the law. You know, the rest of them turn out to be completely straight laced. Well, that that Hope v. Pelzer case was um, a case that made it clear that uh, off uh, correctional officers have to. Um, be on notice that their conduct is unlawful, unlawful at the time that they do some incident. Um, and I think you argued kind of the common sense. Everyone should know that chaining a man up to this hitching post right. in the middle of the day with no water, no food, no bathroom. That's that. That's cruel and unusual. That violates his constitutional right. Right. And that was actually the cool hand loop moment was that when he is when Mr. Hope was out on the 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 he was actually there for two days for some reason and uh the second time he was out there um they, it was hot and one of the guards came up to him and with a with a bucket of a pail of water and asked him if he wanted to drink some water you know out of the bucket like a like an animal and uh, mr hope said uh, yes sir i'm not too proud to do that so then he puts the bucket of water at Mr. Hope's feet, and he's going to chain to this post. And by the way, the New York Times happened to be there that day uh, doing the art, and, and there's actually a photograph in the New York Times of Larry Hope chained to the post, which was kind of nice, a nice little visual aid to have, you know, my client on the front page of the New York Times, you know, or on the front page of a section of the New York Times. Well, anyway, 
the guard whistles and the and the prison dogs come running over there and they start drinking out of the bucket and then he picks up the then the guard picks up the bucket again holds it up to my client's face and he said you still want to drink the water he said yes sir i'm not too proud to drink after a dog and then the guy the guard turns the bucket upside down dumps the water out and leaves and then when he's leaving at the end of his shift, you know, he goes, he's driving out the road in his Jeep with no top on it, blowing the horn, shooting the bird to Larry Hope. So th this is what this man had to endure. And this is a, of course, we didn't sue that guy. I have no idea who he was. You know, we yeah. basically just sued them for putting, you know, restraining somebody as punishment for something that they did or didn't do previously. You know, you can only use force or restraints long enough to accomplish a legitimate uh, purpose, but you can't prolong it. You can't use it gratuitously for punishment. And that's essentially what they said. And and and, and the, the place where the rubber hits the road in that case, and in all qualified immunity cases, is the only way you can recover damages for a constitutional violation is if the law has already been clearly established that what happened in this case is unconstitutional. And guess what? There never been another case where people were chaining people to poles and, you know, kicking over buckets and making them drink after dogs or anything like that. So the, the Supreme Court basically said, well, some things were just so obvious that you yeah. don't need to have a prior case on point. And so that's opened up, it's created in a big area what, which a fertile ground for litigation because so many cases get thrown out of qualified immunity because the plaintiff can't find a prior similar case. But some things are so obvious where they violate a rule from a, a, a case involving different facts, but it applies with obvious clarity to the facts in this case. So it, it it is a it is an end run around qualified immunity that that works sometimes, but you know going back to my original point um, when we first started this uh, discussion, I said that I if it's a case that I think is a slam dunk, I I I still lose it fifty to sixty percent of the time. That's because of this qualified immunity defense. And the way I look at it, the way I look at it is if if, if this was baseball. Uh, I'd be in the Hall of Fame. I'd be I'd be Ted Williams or Ty Cobb. I'd be batting, you know, in the four hundreds. Sure. But that's completely uh, unlike every other area of, of of plaintiffs lawyering. You know, these guys with the big faces on the billboards. You know, they 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 they're taking clear liability cases. It's just a question of how much money you know they're going right. to get for their client. Right. And most lawyers won't take a case at all unless they think they're 90 percent chance of winning. I take a case that I think I've got a 90 percent chance of winning, knowing that I still good chance I'm going to lose it. <laughs> but it's because I because I, 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 I have my intellectual interest in the city of the law and, and wanting to live in a fair and just society. Well, I agree. And I've had a, a as nerd, you know, being a nerd, a constitutional nerd. As you know, I've had a couple of prison cases. And what I've argued uh, about an officer knew that that his conduct was unlawful. My standard is uh, if you wouldn't do it to a dog, then you know it's unlawful. And, 
you know, I had a case where my client, they they left him, he he attempted suicide by hanging. Guards come in and we've got this on, on body cam. They see him hanging and leaving mm-hmm. and talk about it and go get a camera and you know all this. And they leave him hanging. Finally, some other guard comes in and says, what are you guys doing? Get him down. Which they did, and he was alive, but oh now brain, but now brain damaged oh because these other guards watched him hang. And uh, you know, my argument was, if it'd been a dog, they would have gotten him down immediately. Um, it's sad that that's the standard we have to have for prison correctional officers, but that unfortunately it is. And but, actually, it's a deliberate indifference standard. You know, they they have it to is actually, deliberate indifference. Number one, they have to have actual knowledge and subjective awareness of the risk of harm. And then they basically have to ignore that risk. Right. So in other words, they basically have to confess that they wanted the guy to die. And in order to convince some judges, the maybe you've met that standard. Uh, It's obvious, you know, they, 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 a jury could find that they had actual knowledge because they were there and it was there. And you can infer that they knew the risk, whether they admit to it or not. And then the question is, if they, in fact, were aware of that risk, was it reasonable for them to do nothing about it? I mean, that's basically the that's the best I can do to, con- to convert a subjective standard into an objective standard. And it works about one out of 10 times. I think I, I've lost the majority of the jail suicide cases I've had. I've either- hard. I've either lost them or settled them once I got by summary judgment. But let's talk briefly about your other Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court case, Scott v. Harris. And that was a, uh, and just for our listeners, the site is 550 U.S. 372, 2007 case. That was an excessive force case involving a a chase, a, a vehicle chase. And we're going to put the, there's a, there's video uh, video of that chase, I guess the dash cam video from the officer's car. Um, and it was interesting when I was reading that because a, a lot of the decision in that case centered on how to interpret that video. Yeah, um, and that was that was absurd. When, when <laughs> so we're going to put that are, video on the website. When judges are arguing about how to interpret a video, you've got a jury question. Plain Makes and simple. Sense. Makes sense. And the one judge, the one judge, way. Judge Justice Stevens, who, who, the one judge who went justice who went my way in that case, was extremely outspoken about that. Uh, he actually spoke at the Georgia State Law School uh, at, after that case came out. I didn't hear it, but I was told that he, you know, he 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 wrote he mentioned that. That case is an example of how the court had become politicized and, and, and certain justices were making outcome determinative decisions, you know, coming up with whatever logic they needed to to justify an outcome that they that they already thought was 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 appropriate, whether the evidence whether it was whether the evidence was disputed or not. And, yeah, and, I, and, and I don't know if you're going to show that video or not, but I have. Gonna, yeah, we're, we're not going to show it right here, but it'll be on our website for yeah. viewers. So they well, can let me say this then. There's a great decision. article. 
there's a great article in the Harvard Law Review. Uh, I don't read it, by the way. I know they read it up in Cartersville. But uh, January 2009 edition of the Harvard Law Review, there's an article about Scott Lee Harris, and they call it Taking the Scott Challenge. A bunch of psychology professors um, showed the video to several hundred citizens and without giving them any explanation of the legal principles or the underlying facts, they simply showed them the video when they asked them, do you think that the police acted appropriately in this case? Um, Two thirds of the people said, yeah, the guy was, he was running for cops, he wouldn't stop, they acted appropriate. One third of the people said, no, that wasn't appropriate. They didn't need to like knock this guy off the road for, for speeding. I mean, they had his license tag. They could have followed him home. You know, uh, he didn't need to. Of course, they didn't know the rest of him. They didn't know he was a quadriplegic. Um, they didn't know he was being stopped for going, you know, 73 and a 55. They didn't know yeah. he was just a panicking kid who wanted to get home because the last time he'd got stopped, it they impounded his car and it cost him $400 to get it out. And his mom's trailer was two miles up the road. And if they, if he, he would have surrendered when he got there, and if and if he hadn't, they would have found him there anyway because they had his tag number. Um, but anyway, what that shows, though, to me, the fact that hundreds of people can look at the same piece of evidence and interpret it two different ways without the rest of the information and without the opportunity to discuss it among each other and reach a consensus. That shows the, the beauty and the value of the jury system. That is a case that clearly should have gone to a jury. And maybe the jury would have decided it was appropriate. Maybe the jury would have decided it was not appropriate. It wasn't worth it. They had other alternatives. But the Supreme Court shut that down completely. They, they, they simply said there's only one way to look at this video. Yeah. And, and, and what was ironic to me was... They use the word belied, which I can't stand. It's almost like if you say something, belies something, you know, it sounds to me like you call me a liar. But what they said was that the plaintiff's version, the plaintiff's account of the incident was belied by the video. Well, guess what? The plaintiff's account of the incident was the video. He had no recollection. He was a quadriplegic. He was knocked unconscious. He had no memory of anything. The only evidence that existed was the video and you could look at that video and you could interpret several different ways and and that to me was the most offensive thing about the decision and it's ironic that this case based upon your statistics this case has been cited um twice as 40, many times as hope yeah has. over forty-five thousand times it's been cited which means a couple things one it one, it shows it, it shows that plaintiffs lose more often than they win in these cases. So, right. so the decisions against the plaintiff are going to be cited more often than decisions for the plaintiff. But, but the most off, the most oft quoted part of that of uh, that decision has nothing to do with the Constitution. It just has to do with the video. If, video. if the video if the video shows you something that that um, that negates the credibility of, of testimony, then they can ignore the, the conflicting testimony and just look at the video. Uh, the irony behind that is if you have a video that shows a cop behaving badly, then the cops will say, well, the, the video doesn't tell the whole story. 
They'll say that, you know, it's not the right angle or it's been tampered with. It's it's just unfortunate that that's what happened in that case. Uh, I'll I'll say in uh, the... Go ahead. I'm I'm sorry, but in Justice Stevens' dissent, he even talks about that it's a a so-called chase. It's not much of a chase. Your client used his turn signal when he went around cars um, but it's on a country road. And Justice yeah. Stevens says for folks who grew up driving on country roads, two lanes, um, every time you pass a car, you have to make that that kind of, at, especially at night, that decision, wow, am I going to hit another car when I when I decide to pass this car? And I, I grew up on con- driving as a teenager sure. on, on country roads. Well, and it's also night and you can see headlights. You can see a car a mile before mm-hmm. it gets to you. And uh, I, one of the biggest disappointments in my life was that Ruth Bader Ginsburg went against Yeah, me I couldn't stage, believe that either. And she said that it was very frightening. I wanted, I bit my tongue. I wanted to say, yeah, but that's because you grew up riding taxi cabs in Manhattan. Correct. But, right. which is pretty, in my experience, is even more scary. Uh, <laughs> but um, but what I did say, and I, I, I probably shouldn't have said it, but I said, I said, you know, well, we, we wouldn't want you on the jury then. Um, Justice Ginsburg. <laughs> and, you know, I meant it as if I meant it to make the point that, well, jurors jury might question. look at this differently. And this yeah. is a jury question. Sure. Uh, justice, uh, justice or, or injustice Scalia, or what are we calling uh, Justice Scalia? He, not one of my favorites. Um, he said it was the most frightening chase scene he had ever seen. He had seen since the uh, this is an oral argument. He said the most frightening chase scene he had seen since the French Connection. And later on, uh, you know, you, you know, after, you know, it's like the George, there's a George Costanza episode like this on Seinfeld, where later on you think of all the cool things you should have said and wish that you'd said. I wish that I'd said, well, 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 judge, I'm from Georgia. And, 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 to, and to, to, to us, it looks more like Smokey and the Bandit. And that's kind of what it was. I mean, this this is just a dumb kid uh, going seventy three. And, and here's the, the sad thing about the whole the whole thing: if if the kid if the kid had simply slowed down, they wouldn't even going to ticket him. Uh, the cop that saw him, uh, the initiated pursuit, saw him going by going seventy three and a fifty five, flashed the blue lights at him, hoping he would slow down. My kid's got the radio blasting. He's not paying attention to anything. He'd know the cops behind him until he'd been behind him for a couple miles. But if he had just slowed down, that would have been the end of it. And now the kid, well, not only did he end up being a, parap- a quadriplegic at the age of 19, he, I can't remember if he's, I think he's a partial quadriplegic. He's more than a paraplegic. But anyway, he died a few years later uh, from pneumonia due to complications uh, from this paraplegia. And, um, uh, you know, I have to wonder, you know, if I'd won that case, uh, maybe his circumstances would have been better. Maybe he would have got better care. Maybe he wouldn't be be dead today. You know, these are the kind of things that you wonder about as a lawyer. I had a police case. I had a case where I sued a cop in Gwinnett County for beating up my client in the DUI toximeter room at the jail because my client mouthed off at him. He broke, he broke his uh, ribs and collapsed his lung. Uh, took him down to the floor. Uh, jury ruled against my client. They ruled against me. And um, a few days after that, the cop's brother, who was also 
a Gwinnett County cop uh, murdered a woman for her insurance money. Uh, it was a high-profile case uh, back in the, the late I remember 80s. that. And he hired the same lawyer to represent him in the criminal case, Walt Britt, that had defended the officer in my case. And I wondered for years, I wondered if I had won that trial, would this cop's brother could kill somebody? What do you Well, I, I mean, you're a you're a kind, compassionate, caring person, obviously. A to do no I'm to a do, do <laughs> but you can't you can't speculate. You can't put that on your shoulders. But, but I understand, but, but it does it does it is important that you know that your everything you do has consequences. Has consequences for and sure. And that it's important that you try to get things right because you, the consequences may be good, they may be bad. Um I've had I've gotten money for people who have thrown their life away, literally killed themselves with that money. I've also had some really inspiring stories where people have bought homes and they have started businesses and they have turned their life around because of money that I got from them that would not be life changing for me. Uh, wouldn't have even covered my taxes, but it's life changing for them. Uh, I had a woman who says, in fact, I had a woman whose, um, whose son was killed by a police officer who emailed me out of the blue 20 years later and said that the money that I got from you, I went to seminary, I became a minister, have my own congregation now. And she said, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about what you did for me. Well, that that's a proud moment. That is a proud moment. And that's that, awesome. that, that, that almost makes up for, you know, that's some pretty, of the that, others. That's, <laughs> that, that's a great example of why we do what we do, Craig. Um, Craig, we, we've enjoyed our time with you and thank you so much um, for talking to us about governmental liability. But, you know, we ask every guest at the end, uh, how do you define justice? What does justice mean to you? Well, to me, personally, uh, justice means um, doing for others what you would want done for you. I mean, basically, that's the golden rule. But ironically, we're not allowed to argue the golden rule to, to juries, uh, maybe because there's a fear that, oh, my God, we'll. We'll. Uh, We'll get too much justice, <laughs> but but I guess I guess the bigger point here is that justice is not a reality. It's not a process. It's a it's a goal. It's an ideal. It's something we're striving for. And you know, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. It's something we're striving for. And as long as we're always bending toward justice, things are okay. One of the biggest problems challenges we have as guardians of the legal system is to try to keep that arc from bending backwards so whenever there are things that try to make it harder for people to access the system or, or make make it less fair for people in the system or treat some people differently from others we have to always worry about going backwards uh, rather than forward so to me justice is a goal and I don't think I don't think it's a goal we can ever achieve completely. I mean, if someone loses a family, a loved one, they don't want the money. The money's not gonna 
is not going to give them the justice they want. They they want their, their loved one back. Uh, so, you know, compensation can only go so far. Retribution can only go so far. Deterrence can only go so far. But as long as we're trying to, as long as we're trying to um, achieve justice, then, then we live in a justice society. Sounds good. Okay. Makes sense. Right humans are humans are infallible and are fallible. I'm sorry, and and so is the system. I mean, and we can all point to injustices that we've seen in our career. We can point to people who who deserved something and didn't get it. I've also had clients who my who didn't particularly deserve it who who got things. You know, life is not fair, but the 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 the, the the goal is to try to make it as fair as possible and always be striving toward um, perfection, whether we have achieved it or not. Well, Craig I, would, Craig, I would say your your career and your law practice certainly um, is is a, a um, model of that, that always striving for justice. And um, and uh, the the amount of justice you've achieved with your career is is amazing. And uh keep keep up the good work i guess is what i would say keep doing what you're doing thank you i appreciate um, it and let me just add to that that you know when, if we could try to learn from our mistakes and you know, we learn more from our mistakes than we do from our successes if anything our successes make us cocky and more likely to make a mistake in the future so we need to always i think um be mindful of the potential consequences of what we do and then try to make the best of whatever happens, and then and then and and then take that lesson to the the next case, which means I, in my practice, it means I've, I've I've pissed off a lot of people by telling them I don't want their case. Twenty years ago, I would have taken it. I won't take it now, and um, I don't have an hour to explain why. But you know, watch the podcast. Uh, what's this thing called? See you in court. Watch, see you in court. I, I, I will text that to everybody that calls me who thinks they have a case that I don't have the time to talk about. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, Appreciate Craig. You again, taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. Again, Appreciate we've been talking with Craig Jones, uh, guru of governmental liability, and uh, heading to. He's going to be living in Savannah, Georgia, soon. That's right. So, thank you again, thank you. Craig. Thank you very much. Well, we are at that uh, time in our program where uh, Robin and I share some news item that we've seen that we think will be of interest to the to the listening and legal public here. Um, Robin, you wanted me to go first today, and uh, my article is actually pretty recent. It's from August 21st, 2023. Uh, and it's from Esquire magazine, and it's entitled Who Won the Depp versus Heard Verdict? Uh, and you'll recall that uh, uh, last summer we were uh, all uh, captivated, you know, to, took, as they say in the article, took the Internet by storm as the ex-couple was engaged in a public trial. Of course, if you missed that, uh, August the 16th, Netflix has uh, has a. Uh, a, a new series, a documentary that's come out on it, uh, and you can you can watch that. So there are a couple little portions that I want to 
to mention about this article and people can decide if they want to go watch the uh, watch the uh, article or, or would go watch the documentary or not. Um, so uh, to to sort of set the stage there, uh, Johnny Depp sued Heard for $50 million and uh, she countersued him for $100 million. They had a six-week trial on court TV. Uh, but uh, at, at the end, uh, the uh, jury returned a a verdict for him for I think it was uh, fifteen million, but it was later reduced to ten million, and she got two million in damages. Uh, so there are a couple of things that I want 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 to talk about uh, here with this case, which is, and I'm going to read from the article. As shown in the documentary, the case ended after a long, painful trial where both Depp and Heard accused each other of abuse. In the end, Heard was found guilty. And this is one of my pet peeves, you know, like I'm I'm not, I don't have pet peeves about typographical errors that people make or about their phrasing of something, but nobody is ever found guilty in a civil trial. And yeah. you and I hear that all the time. And, you know, guilt imposes, I mean, you know, says you're going to be punished for something that you violated a criminal statute. And I think it's probably particularly appropriate with what we've talked about with Craig, uh, our guest today, uh, about lawsuits or to compensate people for wrongs that have been done to them. They're not about establishing guilt and innocence. The other thing that I thought was really interested, interesting about this is that it tells how, uh, you know, how the case ended. And it says, Heard and Depp eventually settled in December of 2022. The actress paid Depp $1 million, which was donated to various charities. So this was a show trial from start, start to finish. No one received any real compensation, uh, you know, for or, or really claimed, you know, for damages done. It was sort of a big show. And, uh, and, you know, I know a lot of people watched it and it probably got a lot of people interested in the in the civil justice system. I may or may not watch the documentary, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, this is sort of an example in my mind of the misuse of the civil justice system. Yeah, I'm I'm going to agree with you on that. It may have been uh cooked up to kind of rekindle both of their careers, maybe yeah. uh, get them back in the news and the headlines. Um, so I, I watched a little bit of that trial when it was on court TV and it was sickening to me. So I didn't watch much and I don't think I'll watch the documentary. But while we're talking about pet peeves, about legal writing, I'll, I'll tell you two of mine. One is when a journalist says they've been awarded a settlement. Okay, there yes, you're yes, not awarded yes. a settlement. Right, that, that's not right. an award. A jury verdict is an award, but not a settlement. That's one. Number two is when there is a defense verdict in a civil case, a particular writer for a local newspaper says the defendant cleared his name. Right. No, they didn't. They just the plaintiff just didn't prove their case, but there, there's no clearing of a name. It, it's not a criminal case. They, he hadn't been charged with any violation of a crime. It's just the case wasn't proved on, on negligence. And I just that that's those are two quick pet peeves that I thought of. 
I totally, totally agree with you uh, about both of those. And, uh, I, you know, and I also think that the, uh, for example, the insurance industry would love to sort of perpetuate that because, you know, our, our instincts, yeah. uh, you know, what, what we have in the Constitution about guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which is yeah. the standard in a criminal case versus more likely than not a preponderance of the evidence in a civil case, which is a much lower standard. Uh, but, uh, you know, they want to impose a higher standard of proof and a higher level of multiple uh, uh, moral culpability on right. rear ending somebody, you know. Exactly. Um, well, my, my news article is also same date as yours, uh, August 21, 2023. And the headline is FBI joins investigation of threats to grand jurors in Trump, Georgia case. And this is about an investigation now that's going on uh, with by the Fulton County Sheriff's Office. And now the FBI has joined in the investigation regarding death threats to the grand jurors who indicted the former president um, for various items. And, and I think I don't I think eight, 18 other people they indicted. Um, but now on these very conservative uh, social media places that that honestly, because <laughs> I'm not involved in that world, I don't, I've never heard of. But apparently there are really some conservative social media spots where these folks have been threatening the lives of grand jurors. We've known about their, their threatening the, the life of our, our district attorney, Fonnie Willis. Um, and that is horrible as well. But now they're threatening grand jurors for simply taking their job seriously, trying to do justice, ask it, it trying to enforce the law. It, it, it just really bothers me. But some of these threats were things like one one threat put online was these jurors have signed their death warrant by falsely indicting President Trump. Others uh, said they put the grand jurors name on a names on a hit list. Now that's that's threatening grand jurors. I'm I'm concerned that once the case is going to be tried by a jury, we're, we're going to see more of that of the of the the pettit juror, jurors in the case. But this is this is outrageous conduct in my opinion, and we've got to do something to protect our grand jurors, our pettit jurors, to say we appreciate your. Um, Coming, you're by there by subpoena. We appreciate your service to the state of Georgia, to the county of Fulton County. You are doing what the law requires, and and we want this to continue because if we don't, the rule of law has no chance. And this is all about preserving the rule of law. Totally, totally agree with that. And uh, it's it it's you know. It shows, too, that there are people out there that believe that jurors are supposed to decide whether somebody is popular, electable, would, you know, was a good president, would make a good president, legislator, you know, whatever else, instead of looking at what the law says, you know, look at what the person is accused of doing and deciding if there's evidence to, you know, in a grand jury indict them, which is a very, very low uh, standard, uh, or in, uh, you know, in a trial, if there's evidence to convict them. And, you know, they just look at, well, I really like this guy and he got indicted. So all these grand jurors, you know, they're on, they're, they're on the hit list now. 
but, but the intimidation, you're absolutely correct. And I hope the FBI uh, ferrets these people out because the, the you know, the, the the grand jury and the jury system is the backbone of, of of the rule of law. And it's the thing that makes it so different from any other branch of government. Uh, it is it is the only branch of government where right instead of might is supposed to uh, rule the day. And uh, so you've got to have people who are willing to make the decision about what's right and what's wrong and to do it without uh, without fear of their lives being upended by that. Right. Um, so, yeah, I hope I'm with you. I hope the FBI and I hope they find these people and prosecute them for intimidation. It's got to stop. Yep. It's got to stop. Well, great talk today. I, th- I think we could probably do another part two on governmental immunity. It's so complicated, really com- complex part of the law. Yeah. And I and, uh, you know, to to you've got to figure out what type of claim it is and wh- who it's against, which governmental entity it's against. Hard. And, you know, God, God bless our guest, Craig, for wading through that to try to get some justice for so many people, you know, over the years. Absolutely. Well, that's all I have, Lester. That's all oh, I have. So I, let, let me let me say one. I, I, I amend that. Sure. Um, our good friend, Judge Herb Phipps, has had a uh, health issue arise and. Um, he was on the Court of Appeals of Georgia at the time this has arisen. He's now stepped down from the court and he's he's um, he's uh, recuperating from this health issue. And I, I just want to send out best wishes to Judge Judge Phipps, sending prayers to him and Connie, his wife, uh, looking for his speedy recovery. Yeah. And, and he um, for those who have not heard his fantastic speech about his involvement in the civil rights era. Uh, which uh, has the 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 ask the question where were all the lawyers? Uh, and I got him uh, along with you, Robin. You were one of my speakers when I was president of the Southeastern Chapter of American Board of Trial Advocates. He's literally gone all over the country giving that speech. And uh, you know, I wish Herb a speedy recovery, and uh, and of course uh, his wife Connie. Uh, but also, uh, it pains me that. He's not out there delivering that message, which needs to be heard and which he delivers so eloquently. So I'm hoping he's he's an amazing. Yeah, he's an amazing man walking history. And and one reason I thought about I was watching before we taped today, I was watching uh, oral arguments in Georgia Supreme Court. And they had an admission of new lawyers in the Supreme Court. And Judge John Ellington, another one of our friends, delivered the the remarks to the new members of the sprint, the new lawyers. And he talked about uh, the speech you're talking about, Judge Phipps' speech, and he was about to deliver it to a group in New Mexico when he had this health issue. It was so an American John, Board of Trial Advocates group. It was the text was of it a, a, Boda? Okay. Yes. Um, and he was not able to deliver it. So Judge Ellington took parts of it and delivered it to the new lawyers this morning in their admission ceremony. And one thing I'll quote from it, and I know you've you've heard this. He talks about courage being the most important quality of a lawyer. And he says the courage to do the right thing when everyone is watching and the character to do the right thing when no one is watching. Um, 
let, that just encapsulates Herb Phipps uh, in a in a nutshell. But what an incredible man, and we're we're looking forward to seeing him again soon after uh, a speedy recovery. Yes, absolutely. All right, my friend. Well, I guess uh, next time we'll see you in court. court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to see you in court podcast at gmail.com.